Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Before we look at Romans 1, 18 to 32 today, I want to walk you through a hypothetical situation. And let's just imagine for a moment that you are going to sell a used car. And you decided that you want to sell that car to a dealership. And so you're taking your car from your house to the dealership. And and on the way there, you probably do this dance that we all do, which is you want to get the car looking the absolute best it's ever looked in your entire history of ownership before you take it to sell it. And so you take it through the boomerang car wash and you wash its outside and then you get the vacuum out and you vacuum the inside and get some of those armor all rags and you're wiping everything down as, as best you can. And as a part of that process of getting it together, um, you also are arranging things in the car just so to try to conceal the problems that the car obviously has. You, you take the, the floor mat and you make sure it covers up where the upholstery is torn and you put the stereo at three because if the stereo hits 10, the, the speakers will crackle and you hope they don't find that. And, and, and you, you hope that the, the lighting is not very good where they're going to examine it in the garage that they might not see the dent on the rear end. None of you have ever done this, I'm sure. It's a hypothetical, okay? So, so here you are, you have your car, and you are taking it to sell at the dealer. And you hand off the keys to the manager, and the manager drives the car around into a bay, and they are beginning to examine it. And you are sitting in the waiting room, and five minutes turns to 10, turns to 15, turns to 30. Eventually, the manager comes back. And the manager begins to talk to you. He said, well, you know, Mr. Robinson, we're very thankful that you've brought your car in today. Uh, here's what we noticed. We noticed that there's a, hole, uh, there's, a, there's a hole in the upholstery in the front seat. And we noticed that the, the, the stereo speakers are broken. You get above a three and they crackle and they pop. And we noticed there's a, a dent on the back end. And you're hearing this going, oh, great, they found it all. But then he keeps going, and he says, and I don't know if you realize this or not, Mr. Robinson, but your tires are all bald, and your alignment is out of whack, and your brakes need to be replaced. And you know what? Your transmission is getting ready to go. It's slipping right now, and your engine, don't even get me started on your engine. And so you walked in there thinking you knew some things wrong with the car. Now you got a whole nother list. Now let me ask you this. Would you consider that to be good news? No. <laughs> really, you can come and worship with us anytime. I, I, need, I need you here. I need you here, sweet girl. No, that's not good news, right? That would not be good news. She said what you were thinking. That would not be good news if, if we found out that. that somebody they, they saw everything and then some. Now, I'm going to press pause on that story, but I think that that story is a wonderful setup for the section of verses that we're getting ready to enter, because when we look at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 3, verses 20, we're going to see the first section of those verses today. Uh, What we have is we have humanity in the shop. We have humanity being examined by the God of the universe, the holy creator God. 
And he brings us in and he is looking over humanity. And what we see from chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, is that humanity is found in a state of disrepair. Certainly, there are the things that we're aware of, the things that we've tried to conceal with our religious religion or our morals or whatever. There's, there's those things, but there, there are a whole other set of things that we haven't even considered, but that are greatly impacting and affecting humanity in our condition, in our state before God. And in these verses, what we get is we get God coming to us through his word and, and letting us know that God is aware of all of the things that we're concealing and then some. And the question is, is that good news? I mean, this is in the series called Good News. Why would we, we stop down for this? Well, John Stott reflected on this in his commentary on Romans. He made a, a statement that I think is relevant here. He says, but if sin and guilt are universal as they are, we cannot leave people alone in their false paradise of supposed innocence. The most irresponsible action of a doctor would be to acquiesce in a patient's inaccurate self-diagnosis. Our Christian duty is rather through prayer and teaching to bring people to accept the true diagnosis of their condition in the sight of God. Otherwise, they will never respond to the gospel. What Stott is saying is that The verses we're getting ready to see indeed are good news because they lead us to the good news. They lead us to Christ as we understand who we are in our condition apart from what God has done. Now, before we we look at these verses together, I I, want to just challenge all of us for a moment. I want to challenge us to, to not see these verses as referring only to America today. It's possible as we read this, even though this is a very old section of Scripture, 2,000 years old, it's possible for us to read it and say, that sounds like what's happening today. And indeed, the things that we're going to read describe our society. But here's the thing. Though these verses are very old, they weren't just prophetic in the sense that they were talking about our day, but these are a good synopsis, a good description of human society in every day. They were true just as much in Paul's day as they are in ours. The condition of humanity has not evolved into something better or devolved into something worse, but it's merely consistently tainted with sin. And we're going to see that today. So don't just think of this as something that maybe is only true for some or is only true now, but this is something that has been true forever. But further, I want to challenge you to not think of this as a message that you wish somebody else would hear. As we read these verses, don't don't begin to think, man, I sure wish that person had come with me. I hope they're paying attention. Listen with your ears and not your elbows. Don't do this as you're listening today, okay? Because this is a message for all of us. It describes our sinfulness. It describes our need And it describes a world apart from Christ. And and many in this room have placed your faith and your trust in Christ. But if Christ had not come and bled and died for you, then this description in 1, 18 through 32 would be all we had. And so these verses are dynamically relevant for all of us today. Let's read this. Let's ponder it for ourselves and not just for others. As we look at... God's assessment of humanity 
in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. I mentioned earlier this is a part of a longer section. We're going to be seeing this in several movements over the next three or four weeks as we look at kind of an assessment of the human condition apart from Christ. Paul here will talk about humanity, and he will talk about humanity with a them. The reason why Paul does that is he's describing all apart from Christ. In other words, if Jesus didn't do what he did, this would be all that we had. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, and he says this. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Now, in these verses today, we're going to see a couple of things, a couple of things that describe humanity, that describe our our sinfulness before God. The first thing we see in verses 18 to 25, I'm going to summarize with this word, rejection. We see a rejection of the revelation of God. Now, before we really get rolling in verse 18, it's helpful for us to remember the context of verses 16 and 17. See, when when Paul wrote this in verses 16 and 17, the verses immediately preceding the section we're reading today, he was describing the good news of Jesus Christ. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
We saw last week that this is a message for all people, that by all faith, the power of God might reveal to us the righteousness of God credited to our account. Now, this is important because in and of ourselves, we do not possess the righteousness of God. In and of ourselves, we cannot live a life that impresses a holy God because we are, are, are sinful and we are fallen. And what happens in the good news of Jesus Christ is that God gives to us a righteousness which is not our own. He gives us Christ's righteousness. He credits it to our account so that we might be reconciled to God and have a relationship with him. And what happens in verse 18 is that, that Paul wants to underline this fact of, of why we need God to give us righteousness. And the reason why we need God to give us righteousness is because we have none on our own. Look at what he says in verse 18. He says that we are ungodly, that we are unrighteous, that it's the opposite of what we need. That's what we are. We're broken. We make wrong decisions. We've wandered away from God. We are unrighteous. Again, he, he says here that, that there's an ungodliness about us. John Stott, again, has some helpful words about this description of our lives. Stott says, Scripture is quite clear that the essence of sin is godlessness. It is the attempt to get rid of God. And since that is impossible, the determination to live as though one had succeeded in doing so. See, on our own, apart from what God has done in our lives, we are not going to move towards God, but we will move away from Him. We might like the idea of God, but when it comes to who is really in charge of our life, who is really our Lord, who is really our master, who really determines right from wrong, we ultimately want to be in a position of making those decisions ourselves. We want to be able to control in some way, and in that way we have created a godless world. We have wandered into some degree of unrighteousness. Now, when I say that, that, that's a lot of big words and a lot of church words, but let me put it this way. Do you, do you have any trouble convincing yourself that humanity sins? Let me ask it another way. Do you have any trouble convincing yourself that you sin? We don't need to look at other people. We just need to look in the mirror to realize the truth of this verse. We are, are sinful people. We have committed unrighteous acts. There's a sense where we want to be in control of our own lives. We want to live some kind of godless existence. At some level in our lives, we want to be in charge. We don't want to trust another. And the problem with that, Paul reminds us, is that the wrath of God is revealed against unrighteousness and ungodliness. Now, now, what does that mean, that the wrath of God is revealed? When I say wrath of God, what do you think of? Just real quick, your snap reaction. Who here thought of like a, somebody with a lightning bolt, like throwing it? Anybody? Got a few people at the back. Thank you. Yeah, uh, we, we, have, we have a few. How about you, Brentley? You think of lightning bolt? Yeah, there, there's, there's, a, there's a sense, right, where, where we have this picture of the wrath of God being God zapping somebody. And, and certainly, there are instances where God's wrath was revealed in our time in dramatic ways, things like the flood in Noah's day or, or things like Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, those kinds of judgments that God brought upon the earth. Certainly, there is wrath of God that looks like that. 
But there are actually some other categories of what God's wrath looks like, and this passage will explain it. And that helps us understand a little more when he says that the wrath of God is being revealed. There's a sense in which God's wrath is being revealed today. God's wrath is, is, is coming towards this world in which we live right now. And it's certainly not coming with a global flood. It's certainly not coming in, in Sodom and Gomorrah the way that we've seen these events happen in Scripture. But there's an instance where the wrath of God is being revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness today. And it says all unrighteousness and ungodliness. Therefore, what does it mean? We'll see that in just a moment. And this ungodliness and this unrighteousness comes not because people are ignorant of God. And sometimes that's what we think. But it comes as people reject God as he has revealed himself to us. See, sometimes we think that that the reason why people sin is because they just don't have the right information. If they just read the right book, attended the right class, heard the right speaker, got the right information, completed the right 12 steps, if they just got all of the, the information right, then suddenly they would make right decisions. But what Romans 1 reminds us of is that our problem is not that we don't have good information, it's that we've rejected the information about God that we have. Look at what he says in verse 19. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. In other words, there is a sense in which all people, no matter where you live on this planet, have some revelation that you have received about God. There are things that you can know about God merely by living in this world. But what are some of those things? Verse 20 goes on and describes them for us. He says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. What Paul is saying there is he says there are certain things that all humans should be able to know about God merely by living in this world. We ought to be able to know that he has a divine nature, that he's different from us, that he's greater than us, and that he has an eternal power. We ought to be able to understand those just by looking at the world around us. This is the sense. If you, The first time you looked into a telescope and you looked out at the universe you would have a sense that the universe was large and that it was great. And one of the amazing things is from the first people that just looked at the stars with a naked eye all the way to modern scientists today that have very powerful telescopes to look many light years into space, they, they still have the same effect of this is one gigantic universe. It is huge. We can't see the edges of it. It's massive. And when we get that sense that the universe is so big and that we are so small, there's a sense where we ought to know that someone created this who is greater than we are. Someone created this who has a, an eternal power, the ability to do things that we can never do. Everything I make has an end. Some of you are happy because you're ready for this message to be over. Everything I create has an end. But an eternal God has power to create something that we can't see the edges of. And every person that has ever walked 
outside and seen the sunset, has ever seen the, 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 the immense beauty of the world, every person that's ever been in a biology class that has understood something about the human body, every surgeon that has ever opened someone up and seen the intricacies of the interior workings of the way that we are created, there's a sense in the created order around us that ought to cause us to see that God is great and that God is, 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 is greater than we are. There's a sense around us that God has revealed this to be true. And in what these verses tell us is instead of receiving that and worshiping God in response in appropriate ways, we have rejected that. And we've decided as humanity to instead put ourselves in charge, to follow creatures instead of the Creator, that we have a better sense of right and wrong than God does. This is what sin has done to us. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. This is a verse that ought to cause us to grieve a little. Because there are people way more intelligent than me that score way higher on scores and understand things about science and nature that, that I, I would never even hope to fully comprehend. Um, and yet they've come to the wrong conclusions that somehow this is an accident. Because their, their minds have been darkened because they rejected the truth that God revealed. And they're acting in ways that are foolish. We live in a society that is marked by this. We should grieve that. It's part of the products of sin in our world. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Verse 23, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We've decided to put ourselves or things like us, things we can control at the center part of the product of sin. Instead of worshiping the God who's revealed himself around us, we've chosen to put ourselves in charge. Verse 24 tells us really an explanation of what the wrath of God being revealed today looks like. He says, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator." Was blessed forever. Amen. It says here that, that God gave them up in the lusts of their heart. It's the idea of a judge after the sentence is passed giving up a convict to receive the due penalty of their actions, giving them up to their penalty. And here we see some of what God's wrath looks like in our everyday lives today. I mentioned earlier there's a sense where God's wrath sometimes looks like His intervention, where He steps in, whether at the flood or some cataclysmic events that are recorded in Scripture. We also know that one day Jesus will return and will judge the earth. There's that kind of the wrath of God where He intervenes. But Romans 1 lets us know of a second kind of wrath of God, a second way that God reveals His wrath among us, and that's when God doesn't intervene, but He steps back. God says, you want a godless world? Go for it. See how that works out for you. He doesn't do it in a, in a petty sense. He does it as a demonstration of his wrath, as a right response from a holy God to sinful activity. And really, it's a, a gracious demonstration of his wrath. 
Because were, were God to, to step in and, and throw lightning bolts every time unrighteousness and ungodliness existed on the earth, none of us would have ever made it to a point of trusting in Christ. But God, in his mercy, demonstrates his wrath right now by taking a step back and saying, okay, see how this plays out. I'll give you over to your impurity. I will let you set other things up as the authority of your life so that you could see the emptiness of that life. He says here that people have worshipped a, a creature, a creation, an idol, instead of the Creator. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but idol worship doesn't seem to be very prevalent in America today. In the sense that most of us don't have little, little carved pieces of wood that we set on a shelf and we, we burn incense to. Most of us haven't hewn something out of rock that we gather around and worship on Sundays. In that sense, idol worship is something that, that we don't necessarily connect with in its classic sense. But I think it's very interesting for us to consider that we make our own idols. They're just not made out of stone or wood. Uh, Timothy Keller, pastor in New York City, wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. And, and in this book, he talks about how the human heart is an idol factory. That we take a lot of things, even some good things, and we make them an ultimate thing in our lives. That we would organize our lives around these things that were never intended to be at the center. That we serve them instead of God. And in that way, some good things become an ultimate thing. They become an idol in our lives. And this is something that should challenge us. It happens as we reject God's truth and we pursue something else to find our significance and our meaning. Some idols that are common in America today might be success or money or image or experience, what feels good. We lift those things up and we, we place them at the center of our lives and we bow down to them. We organize our decisions around them. And as we sit here today, even as followers of Christ, there are some of us who have taken something and placed it as an ultimate thing in our lives. And here's what happens. When we do that, we, we ultimately find that it is absolutely unsatisfying. It's part of what God does by removing his, his, his presence in a situation. He lets us experience the consequences of placing something other than himself at the center of our lives. Alexei de Tocqueville, the, the famous French person in the 1800s, wrote a book about democracy in America, and he made an observation of America in the 18. Uh, 30s that I think is very relevant for us today. This is what he says. He says, the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. Everything that we have made an ultimate thing in our lives apart from God himself has left us somehow with an incomplete joy. The money is never enough. The success is fleeting. The image we always have to manage and it never seems to be quite what we need it to be. The experiences are over, and then we're after the next high. This is the life that we live, and it's a life that we live because we live in a world that is marked by sin. 
where we have rejected God and we have placed other things at the center and we are experiencing the consequences. First thing we see in these verses is a rejection. But the second thing we see is, is more than just a rejection. It's, a, it's an out-and-out out rebellion. This rebellion is, is not just a, a passive life, but it's an, an active life, pursuing things that, that are not good for us, that God has never intended for us. And in verses 26 to 32, we see how this rebellion against God plays out in our, our moral lives. When we've rejected him, we place ourselves at the center, and we place ourselves as the master of our lives, there will be a number of things that will flow from that. And Paul wants to illustrate the futility of rebelling against God and of pursuing these other things. And in order to do that, in order to illustrate that, he's going to begin with this illustration of homosexuality, where he's going to mention in verses 26 and 27 um, homosexual sin. This is what he says. He says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, the question we ought to be asking ourselves at this point is, why does he pick this illustration? Specifically, in a world that we live in, like, like ours today, in America in the 21st century, where this issue gets a lot of conversation, why is it that Paul brings it up here? Well, I think one of the reasons, it's obvious why he brought it up, is because he is going to identify homosexual activity as sinful. But here's the question. Does he bring it up because homosexuality is the worst sin? I don't think so. I think he brings up homosexuality here, not because it is the worst sin, not because it is the unforgivable sin, not because it is the epitome of sin, but because it is a good example of how People can take what God has revealed in nature and reject it to pursue what we think might feel good. You see, God has created men and women to work together. He's created us anatomically to work together. He set up at the very beginning of creation, Adam and Eve in the garden because he wanted them to work together. Both, uh, they, they fit together physically, but also so that they might be able to have children as a part of that process. There's a natural revelation of what is, what is good and right in nature about sexual activity, and it is between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife in marriage. But what happens in, in the world in which we live is that we have rejected what God has revealed in nature. And we've made ourselves an arbiter of what is right and wrong based on what feels right or feels wrong. And I know what some might say as they read these verses is they might read them and they might say, well, you know what it says here about nature, and so what he's talking about is this is only talking about what, what feels natural to us. In other words, if somebody is born with, a, with a, a certain set of feelings that leads them towards homosexuality, that it's okay for them because it feels natural to them. This is talking about those for whom this does not feel natural. In other words, heterosexuals engaging in homosexual activity. 
But I don't think that's what Paul intended here. And the reason why is that this passage is full of references to creation. It talks about God creating the earth. It talks about the different classifications of of birds and animals and, and different things that God created. There's a lot of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 references in this section. And that way, I think what Paul is saying was he talks about what is natural. He's talking not about what feels natural to an individual, but what God naturally created as the order in his revelation in the beginning. And yet, we've put ourselves in the position of determining what is right and wrong. And this is an evidence of that. You know, if Paul were to write this today, and if he were to expound, if he was here and we were to have a conversation with him, he, I think he could certainly expand uh, this application to other sins in the sexual area. You know, we live in a world where where people have exchanged what God has naturally created, a husband and a wife together in marriage, they've exchanged that for a relationship with a screen. It's a bad trade. They've exchanged the intimacy of a husband and wife for pornography. In that way, they're, they're acting against nature. God intended these desires to be fulfilled in a particular way, but we in our sin have found different ways to pursue that. God intended it for it to be a husband and a wife, and yet in our perversions, I believe Paul would expound the same application. We've, we've sought that outside of the marriage relationship, either in premarital sex or in affairs once already married with someone who's not your spouse. They're bad trades. They're bad exchanges. They're what sin does when we put ourselves in the point of control and we make ourselves the ones who determine what is right and what is wrong instead of allowing even what God has revealed through nature, not even through his word, but also just through the natural order of things that we would be able to understand what is right. The filter is broken, and we begin to call error truth and truth error. One of the the, the evidences of, of sin, of unrighteousness, of ungodliness. He goes on, verse 28, he says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. This, again, is an indication that homosexuality is is mentioned here as an example, but not as the only example and not even as the chief example. It's mentioned in a list of other sins. There are a number of other ways where we have rejected what God has revealed in nature and we have pursued a righteousness that is our own and have found ourselves very distant from God. It says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. See if any of these ring a bell in your life. Evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. There's there's a good one, right? I mean, as, as a parent, Who's here today? I mean, we, we read that. It's a, it's a reminder of just how far sin permeates life, not just in the sexual area, not just in the vertical area with God, but, but also in every horizontal relationship of our lives. Sin has perverted it. It's corrupted it. It's destroyed God's created order. We've rejected it. We've rebelled against it. Foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Part of the wrath of God as it's revealed in our society is God says, if you want to live a godless life, this is what happens.
And this rebellion that we have is, is accentuated as an intentional action, as an active rebellion against God, not just something passive. And what we see in verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, meaning the wages of sin is death. There's a sense that we know there are consequences for sinful behavior. But he goes on and says, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. This is the world in which we live, a world in rebellion against God because of our sin. And here really is is the question that we have. How is that working out for us? How is it working out for us to live a life apart from God? How is it working out for us? Is it satisfying or do we have an incomplete joy? As we put something else at the throne behind the driver's seat of our lives, is it as fulfilling as we thought it would be? I know that I can speak from my own experience and say, absolutely not. And I think at some level, everyone in this room could agree with that. And here's the good news. There is another way. There is another way than just living in a world that is marked by sin and experiencing the pain of adultery and divorce and slander and gossip and malice. There is another way, but that way requires something that we do not have. That way requires the sovereign God of the universe to give to us that which we cannot own on our own, that we cannot earn, to give in His grace to us the righteousness of God. Romans 1, 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That includes every sin we listed just a moment ago. That includes every part of the unrighteousness and the ungodliness that you have ever thought about or committed or been a part of in your life. There is power from God for your salvation, even with that sin being committed if we would just believe in him. It says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now I want to wrap up our time where we began. I want to wrap it up back at the auto dealer. Let's say you took your car in and the dealer takes it around into the garage, and he, he looks at it, and he comes back, and he says, I saw the tear in the upholstery, and I saw the dent in the rear bumper, and, and I noticed that the speakers rattle, and the, the tires are bald, and the brakes are bad, and the transmission is shot, and the engine is, is, is on its last leg. But then the manager of that dealership says this, And having seen all that, I want to offer you 10,000 over blue brakes. Now, if that happened, you would want to know the dealership, right? If that happened, you would have an extreme confidence that the dealer bought exactly what he knew he was getting. And you could sell the car with a clean conscience. Folks, here is the amazing truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. 
Our lives are fully known by God. He's put us up. He's examined us through and through, and He's found us in a total state of disrepair. He's aware of the things that you've tried to conceal. He's aware of the things that that you have confessed, and He's aware of the things you're not even aware of. But He loves you anyway. And He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to demonstrate to you just how committed He was to spending an eternity with you. He offers to give to you the righteousness of Christ, and we can receive it in a clean conscience knowing that God is fully aware of everything we've done. But He's made provision for us anyway. Let me pray. Father, in in this room right now, I I know that there are are people who are here today who have, have never place their faith and their trust in Christ. And Father, right now, I, just, I want to pray specifically for them. Father, they, they may have failed to place their trust in you because they are in a state of rebellion or they have rejected your truth. They may have not placed their, their faith and their trust in you because they feel like they have done something that, that could never be forgiven. But Father, no matter, no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the situation, no matter what the issues, I pray today that your word has spoke to their heart. And I pray that they would, they would realize, um, as, as I did 25 years ago, that our only hope for eternity is for the righteousness that only you can give to be given to us by faith. Father, thank you that we do not have to earn your approval, and thank you that you give us forgiveness through your Son. And I pray today that all of us here would be trusting in Jesus for our eternity. Otherwise, we have no hope. And that, Father, is the good news that you've given to us in Jesus' name.